When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello and welcome to the Red Box Politics Podcast in the Times. I'm Matt Chorley. Before we begin, a special word from Nikki Noodles, who posts a review on iTunes saying the podcast is pretty good, but asks, please stop moaning about how much you don't want another election. We get it. They're tiring. Today's panel, you have been warned. Before I introduce this week's guest, a reminder to sign up to my daily morning email, which rounds up all the political news you need with extra gossip and insight from inside the Westminster bubble. Go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash red box. And as an added bonus, in the email this week, you'll find a link to a special offer to try out the Times and Sunday Times at a special discount. Get unlimited digital access to both titles for just £1 a month for three months when you subscribe. And that offer lasts until July the 1st. Right, plugs over, down to business. This week, I'm delighted to be joined by Sam Coates, the Times deputy political editor, who wonders if Britain really should be turning a blind eye to the US separating children from their parents. Times columnist Rachel Sylvester is on jogs and William Hague's call for cannabis to be legalised. But first, Paul Johnson, Times regular and director at the Institute for Fiscal Studies on Theresa May shaking the magic money tree. So Theresa May wants to give the NHS more than £20 billion extra in the next five years. She says in part from leaving the EU. But if you look at the cost of paying the exit bill and promises for things like funding farmers, there's literally, arithmetically, no money over that period. And we know that finances will be worse as a result of the EU referendum. That's something the government has accepted. In short, there is no Brexit dividend. Talk about raining on the Prime Minister's parade, Paul. She's finally come to the point of saying she was going to give the NHS some more money, but there seems to be real doubt about where it's coming from. And as ever with these things, everyone turns to you and your fine Institute for Fiscal Studies to tell us the truth about the numbers. And you're pretty... I mean, sometimes think tanks like yours might sit on the fence a bit, but on this you're pretty adamant there just isn't a Brexit dividend. Well, there isn't a Brexit dividend. I mean, the the truth, of course, is that if we're going to spend more money on the NHS, in the long run we'll have to raise taxes. In the short run we could increase borrowing, though that would involve breaking the Conservatives' manifesto commitment to try and get to budget balance by the mid-2020s. That's something they will have to make a decision about. But, but actually in the long run, because this is you know, an extra 20 billion for health. And I'm afraid the health service will want another 20 billion five years later. In the long run, there's not really much getting away from increasing taxes. And that's a discussion we're going to have to have with both of the big political parties and as a nation. And when you've crunched the numbers on this, what what do tax rises mean for listeners? What, What sort of increases in tax levels are required to meet this sort of 20 billion pounds or even half that? 
Well, of course, it depends how you do it. But if you were, for example, to uh, pay for this through increases in income tax, someone on sort of average-ish kind of earnings, £30,000 a year, uh, would see several hundred pounds additional uh, tax payments. Now, uh, some people will say that you can do all of this by taxing the rich and taxing companies, and you could do some of it. You could not introduce the tax cut, corporation tax cuts that are coming down the line. You could increase, to some extent, taxes on higher earners. But in the end, you're going to need some fairly broad-based tax increases if you're looking at £20 billion and more over the longer run. Rachel, you've written about this in your column in The Times this week, about how, on the face of it, Jeremy Hunt's emerged as the winner, in that he got the, the birthday present for the NHS that he's been after. But Philip Hammond has been left with a headache of actually finding the money yeah, to pay for it. It just seems to me that it's a bit like Brexit. Theresa May has kicked the can down the road yet again. So there's no detail of how this is going to be funded. As Paul says, the Brexit dividend is nonsense. Um, she's not had the difficult discussions with the public or her cabinet about which tax rises she wants. And most importantly for me, there's nothing in this on social care. And the NHS crisis is definitely also a social care crisis because one in 10 of the hospital beds are now taken by people who are well enough to go home but can't. That's more money still and there's no structural reform, no attempt to deal with that huge looming growing problem with the ageing population. So I think it's actually symptomatic of her lack of courage. And you write about how Jeremy Hunt sort of was picking one fight at a time. He was going to try and get the money for the NHS first and then move on to social care. But do you get the sense that there's an appetite from the Treasury having been landed with one bill to then start looking for money for social care as well? No, absolutely not. I think the Treasury is doing everything it can to kick that down into the spending review. You know, there's no way they want to have two departments settling ahead of the comprehensive spending review, which is meant to be happening next year. So social care is in the local government department, NHS is in health. They don't want to have those two huge departments taken out of the spending review. But you can't really deal with the NHS in isolation. It is also a social care question. Uh, so so this is a, it's a really not facing up to the actual challenge that the country's got. Sam, you and I have written a story in the front of the Times today about the message that Philip Hammond gave the special cabinet where they all met to, for Theresa May to announce this brilliant news that one person in the room, Jeremy Hunt, had got £20 billion, but nobody else is getting anything. And the clear message from Philip Hammond is the cupboard is bare. If you've got, if there is a Brexit dividend, if, even if we pretend there's a Brexit dividend, you've just spent it and there is no other money. There is something extremely special about the fact that Theresa May spent... I think it's almost £25 billion at the weekend once you take into account the extra money for the devolved administrations. So Theresa May has spent the single biggest amount of money that I can remember and hasn't really had good headlines for it. This prompts quite a hollow laugh around uh, Westminster when you point that out. It also is also a point greeted with quite a lot of enthusiastic agreement. Theresa May has played possibly the biggest domestic policy card that she will get to play in, in her entire time as Prime Minister. And yet, as you heard from Paul and as you heard from Rachel, the questions just don't keep coming. On one level, we just must stop and pause and say, what an epic failure of communication. Somebody somewhere inside number 10 ought to be jolly embarrassed with themselves and be asking whether they're the right person for the job. But more generally... <laughs> 
Well, Any, I, anyone in particular you've got in mind? I don't know. I can't. I, I can't remember the, the, the their names. Name you, so. To link it with Brexit, though, is uh, just so, well, insane. It, well, look, I did. There are. We've rehearsed the arguments as to why the announcement didn't go quite as smoothly as as twenty million pounds might buy you from a different PR company, um, <laughs> <laughs> like Bell Pottinger or something. Um, but I think that what you've also got is, as Rachel says, a, a sort of a set of big choices coming down the track. My understanding, your understanding, I think is that yesterday's cabinet meeting didn't see a whole bunch of cabinet ministers complain vocally up front about what had happened. But there was a kind of chill. They walked in the room thinking, oh, well, maybe we've just watched Philip Hammond be roll over the weekend. Let's see what, what we can get out of him. And the united message instead that came down from Theresa, from Philip, from Liz Truss, even from some cabinet ministers like Dave Gork, is that you know, that's it. That's the one-off bonus. That's all we've got. And uh, everyone's going to have to have miserly... Um, increases uh from here on in so so that's police that's housing that's defense um all of these important areas there was a particular moment of schadenfreude maybe chagrin there was just irritation around the table where uh jeremy hunt was 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 sort of proceeding along with his presentation and saying that of course they have agreed that uh, uh that social care won't inflict as it were any more damage on the nhs budgets because they're going to do something about that uh, that was seen by some people around the cabinet table as yet another spending bid from Jeremy Hunt, which rightly, I think... Rightly right, seen. Rightly <laughs> seen. Uh, which I think, quite frankly, for people in other departments with big budgets, was the last thing they wanted to hear. <laughs> so you've got a problem. You've got a political problem. People wonder whether or not Theresa May, who does roll over on things... I mean, I think 18 months ago, she didn't like all of this Simon Stevens, chief executive of, the, of NHS England, calling for money, you know, the fact that they'd already got a settlement just before the last election, now asking to reopen it again. She was very resistant to that and was trying to bear down on the NHS to make efficiencies to find money for themselves. But the truth is that Theresa May, again, has been rolled. And if she's been rolled this number of times so far, I think the other spending ministers think, well, we're going to give it one more go. I don't know what the panel thinks. I mean, I, I sort of slightly took a, a different view to Sam in that if we are having an argument about where the money is coming from, the public will still be hearing there is going to be £20 billion pounds in the NHS. It is a bit like the bus. While the media was having an argument about whether or not £350 million pounds was the right figure, the public was hearing we were giving a lot of money to the EU, which could be given to the NHS instead. And she looks like she's delivering on that. I mean, it clearly had big cut through in the referendum campaign. She sounds like she's delivering on that and there's more money for the NHS. Doesn't she get some sort of political boost from that? Well, it's, I mean, it is, as Sam was saying, it's a big change. This is, um, you certainly for health, this is a move away from austerity. And that's not something that we've been able to say for the last seven or eight years. I mean, yeah. people have talked about the end of austerity, but for the NHS, whilst this isn't kind of massive, and in fact, this is a little bit less than the average increases they've had over over the last 70 years. This is a big change from what they've had over the last uh, seven or eight years. I don't think it's at all, su at all surprising, actually, that we haven't heard where the money's coming from either. It would have been remarkable outside of a budget uh, to have had the Prime Minister or the Chancellor saying, well, actually, we're going to increase your income tax or your national insurance contributions. I would have been really surprised if we'd heard any more precision than we got. It does leave a heck of a headache for the Treasury, though, because they're either going to have to um, break their manifesto commitment on, 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 the, um, on the deficit, or they're going to have to try and get some fairly significant tax rises through Parliament. 
and when they've tried to get even really little tax rises through in the last couple of years, they've they've struggled. Uh, c- can I just pick up on one point that you made? You said it's the it's the end of austerity for the NHS. Now I, I've sat through the date debates around the NHS budget in 2010 and 2011 and 2012 and 2013. That that wasn't the language that they were using then. For most of the period of the last eight years, the language has been around oh, we're protecting the NHS budget. We've ring-fenced the NHS budget. There isn't a problem with the NHS because we've protected that spending. So whilst you and I might have described it as austerity because we would be comparing it with historical averages, the messaging to the public wasn't of austerity. It was of this being a priority and we were dealing with it. So I just wonder in that context whether or not that plus the fact that just about every single health group I can can envisage has come out and called this amount of money vaguely disappointing, does undermine the benefits in the public domain of what's been spent. Yes, they, they've got a big figure, but it is somehow undercut by the fact that Downing Street politically didn't manage to line up enough people to say, well done. Again, just one more thing that a smart communication operation would do but just doesn't seem to have happened. There's, all, there's also, isn't there, an issue about whether it's going to work. So if you've got... It was one of the health ministers said recently, if you putting money into the NHS without also putting money into social care is like running the bath without the plug-in. The money's just going to go in one end and out the other, so people are still going to see waiting lists. They're still going to have any crisis. There's still going to be a sort of winter crisis next year or a spring crisis or a summer crisis or an autumn crisis. And so people aren't... There isn't, I don't think, the danger of this is it'll look like the money's being put in without actually the impact and the result that they want. The money isn't being put in until next April. So we're going to have one more... We've got Good news, guys, we've got one more winter crisis to go without the money. I mean, it is worth saying, I mean, on the NHS, I think several things in response to that. I mean, first, while it has been a very tough year, eight years, the NHS has been protected a lot relative to everything else. And actually, as a fraction of public spending, it's risen faster than ever over the last eight years because everything else has been so hard done by. And that's a trick we're not going to be able to carry on, which is why there's going to have to be some some tax rises. Secondly, we can sort of overdo how bad the NHS is. It is so much better than it was 20 years ago on every imaginable measure, whether that's waiting lists or public satisfaction or the number of people who don't die. It's so much better than it was 20 years ago. And actually, it managed pretty well through the first five five years of squeezes. What the government is doing is a little belatedly responding to the fact that eight years was too much to squeeze it, but it worked pretty well for a good five. I was struck just before we move on. Um, there's a chart that I had in the Red Box email on Monday, but it was using IFS figures. So this 3.4% average rise over over the period that Theresa May's talking about, 2024, matches the average annual increases under John Major and Margaret Thatcher, which... I don't recall them being held as the great spenders on the National Health Service by uh, the Labour Party. Under Blair and Brown, it's 5.9%. And under the previous, up at the the sort of Cameron May era, it's been 1.3%. It's sort of in the middle of where we've expected over the last sort of several decades, rather than a great big... Oh, yeah, it's not a big... I mean, relative to what the NHS is used to, this is not a particularly big increase, particularly coming after such a long period of very low... Increases, of course. But there's no way we're going to get back to the, the the Brown Blair period when the economy was, you know, doing well and public spending was rising very quickly. But I do have some sympathy for the government here because this is a desperately tough trade-off that they have to make. You know, they've got to choose where they're going to put their money. They're going to have to raise extra taxes or extra borrowing just to increase spending on the NHS, and the NHS spending is increasingly becoming just the 
biggest thing, well, it is the biggest thing in government spending. And so a 3% increase a year on the NHS just means squeezing everything else or raising taxes. The, the trade-offs and the reason that, the, you know, the Chancellor's been telling the rest of his colleagues there's no money is because the NHS sucks up so much. Just finally, before we move on, if you were a betting man, where would you think that he's going to go looking for a tax rise? What's the most likely thing for the Chancellor to do? He could ditch the corporation tax cuts that are coming down the line. That could get him a five or six billion. Uh, people have been speculating about uh, holding the personal allowance, the higher threshold, at their levels from 2020. That gets him a small number of billions um, going forward. Historically, people have gone looking in the national insurance system. I think that would be a terrible idea because, once again, that would essentially you know, hit working people and let pensioners um, off the hook. There are all sorts of little things you can do that can add a billion here and there. You know, we haven't had an increase in the main rates of income tax since the 1970s, and I imagine we will continue not to have an increase in the main rates of income tax. I think given the, the current um, um, maths of the Houses of Parliament, never mind the, the, the budget, uh, suggests that, that that probably won't happen. Right, let's move on. I'm sure we'll come back to that when the budget looms in the autumn, but let's move on. And uh, this is Rachel Sylvester. The Tories have always pitched themselves as the party of law and order, but the case of Billy Caldwell, the little boy with epilepsy whose cannabis oil treatment was seized at Heathrow, has raised questions about the war on drugs. Several ministers now support the legalisation of medicinal cannabis, and William Hague has gone further and called for the decriminalisation of marijuana for recreational use. Other Conservatives now reconsidering their approach to crime. So in a way, Rachel, when I saw the the piece that William Hague had written it looked to me like he was muddling two essentially distinct issues the debate we'd seen over the last week or so had been about the use of medicinal cannabis and so sort of just lobbing in well why don't we decriminalize cannabis for everyone and you know we can tax it and you know boom time or whatever that seems like a separate issue which risks undermining the what seemed like a, a sort of fairly sensible debate that had been going on. It's like a lateral thinking gets him the big bucks at the Telegraph. <laughs> <laughs> and, and won him, so famously, the 2001 election. Um, what, what do you think's going on, Rachel? I think there are two... You're absolutely right. There are two issues, and the medicinal cannabis now has pretty wide support for legalising that in the Cabinet. The only potential problem is Theresa May, who still sees herself as a sort of tough on law and order former Home Secretary and is worried about the Middle England, you know, disapproval of that. Um, And I think you're right, muddling it up with recreational use does muddy those waters. Um, But there is, there has been for some time now a strain of opinion in the Tory party, MPs and some ministers who think there should be a wider rethink of drugs policy. So I think there's definitely very strong case likely to happen that there'll be some kind of move on the medicinal use just makes it just seems to make absolute sense and there's a danger of the government looking like the sort of inhuman face of bureaucracy faced with this sort of tragic story of the little boy having appalling epileptic fits so that i think could go through quite smoothly much more controversial would be doing anything on recreational use and speaking to people at the Home Office, I gather that Sajid Javid had absolutely no intention of moving on that, although he is open to the medicinal argument. And some, there was talk of a, of a small bust-up between Sajid Javid and Theresa May at Cabinet uh, on Monday as well, although that seemed to have been down to a misunderstanding more than an actual disagreement on the, on the cannabis front. We can never be totally sure what was going on in both of their heads, <laughs> un- unfortunately. Uh, but it did look like Sajjan Javid was 
persistently trying to raise the issue with Theresa May, and Theresa May was trying to get him to stop talking about it. I think the official version, I believe, is that uh, Theresa May just wanted to talk to him about it after Cabinet. Other people around the Cabinet table just saw a little frisson of a something there. I mean, you've got to sort of look a bit at the sweep of this policy area. Uh, if you remember when Theresa May was Home Secretary, she disposed of David Nutt as head of the sort of uh, the body that advised the government on migration because he took a, a softer line to her on, on, on drugs. Watching her talk about this at a press conference uh, on Monday uh, after the NHS speech, I feel like she is absolutely committed to doing nothing whatsoever uh, <laughs> on, the, uh, on decriminalisation. I even got the sense from the way she was answering the questions, she's not entirely comfortable with changing the rules around medical use of cannabis. I think she sees, uh, at a guess, and I don't know this, but at a guess, I'd say that she would worry um, that uh, she might be attacked by people like the Daily Mail if she did anything that could be accused as being the, the thin end of the wedge. Good news is that uh, Daily Mail's about to change, so maybe a lot of policy might change as a result of that. Um, uh, the So I think that she is incredibly hardline and believes it. But I've been looking this morning at some of the polling around this, which is fascinating. I think it tells you sort of why it's a slightly more difficult argument, because I think, I think, that, I think the Tory party doesn't want to change drugs policy more generally. So I've been looking at some polling this morning, which points to why this issue is quite difficult, more difficult than the Tory party, where I think they broadly will oppose any relaxation of the rules. Asked, do you support or oppose the legalisation of cannabis in the UK? 43% of the population say they support it and 41% oppose it. So it is a bit more finely balanced than perhaps I would have I would have thought it, when looking at just Tory voters, 59% oppose, 31% support. That's not an inconsiderable number that support as it happens. But when you are ask about what should you do about the medicinal use of cannabis. I think people are overwhelmingly in favour of the prescription of that. 75% say you should be able to prescribe cannabis for medical use. Just 12% say that you shouldn't. And I think that the most difficult bit of the politics of all of this is that Theresa May will come under pressure to shift policy not just implementation, but policy to ensure that the horrific scenes and story that we got last week doesn't ever happen again. And it felt to me like Jeremy Hunt gets this very well. It sounds to me like Sajid Javid gets this very well. They've teamed up before on NHS migration just a week ago to get something out of the Prime Minister that she didn't want to give. I wouldn't be surprised if they succeeded. Now, Paul, whenever uh, there is a discussion about decriminalisation of or legalisation of cannabis, somebody will pop up and say, "Oh, well, if it was, if it was legal, it could be taxed." And think of all the billions that will go rolling into the treasury. Is that something that the IFS has ever looked at? The the great the dope dividends that could could be paying for the for the NHS? I can't say that. I can't say that we have. There's not a great deal of uh, data that you can look at to see how much uh, how much you get hold of. Uh, but actually, I think that's a it's a, it's a red herring. Um, uh, cannabis use, like many many other things, is not a is not an economic question. It's a, it's, a, it's a very different sort of question. You need to decide whether you think decriminalisation would have a positive or negative effect on you know, the nation's health and happiness and so on, and and then you know look at what the economic effects would be. People made similar sort of arguments around fox hunting. You shouldn't ban fox hunting because there'd be uh, a negative effect on the rural economy. Well, that's not the reason for banning it or not banning it. You have to make a decision on the basis of a whole series of other things. If you think it's morally wrong, then you ban it, even if there's a small economic costs and if you don't then you don't ban it and i think uh, i think cannabis is a similar thing i think economists have got a rather small amount to say about this i have to say very good point taken uh in a moment we'll move on to talk about what is um the horrific stories which are coming out of america we'll be back after this short break 
When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Welcome back to the Red Box Podcast. I'm joined in the studio by Paul Johnson, Rachel Sylvester, and this is Sam Coates. Children in cages. Children recorded wailing in cages separated from their parents, possibly never to see them again. The reports of President Trump's detention policy feel a step apart from anything that we have seen so far. There's no direct British locus in this debate other than the emotional response of the pictures and the reports. So how should British politics respond? How should the British government respond? How should ministers respond? How should MPs take up this issue? Should we respond at all? Will British politics say anything? And we've got a visit from President Trump coming within days, so it sounds as if we can't say nothing. Sammy, this this story seemed to, for me anyway, sort of slightly came out of nowhere. I sort of started to become aware of it through social media towards the end of last week, and everything I've read about it is sort of even more awful than the last time that I read about it. And it's sort of, it's one of those stories when you start digging around in it, you think, well, it can't be that bad. It's just people who don't like Donald Trump who are egging it up a bit you know it's clearly being exaggerated and I was before we came in I was listening and reading there was a recording that ProPublica as a website in America has got audio from inside a US Customs and Border Protection Facility and it's basically just the sound of children crying and calling for their parents and uh, the, the guards just making jokes about it and it's just awful and this is happening in a country it's not some sort of despotic regime in some terrible part of the world it's happening in America one of our closest partners supposedly and as far as I'm aware nobody and the UK government has commented on it. No. So you did better than me. I'm aware of the ProPublica recording of the sounds from inside these warehouses, and I chose not to listen to it because I knew what effect yeah, it would have right, on me. Yeah. I'm going to read you four sentences from an Associated Press report from Texas where there is uh, one of these detention centres. Inside an old warehouse in South Texas, hundreds of children wait away from their parents in a series of cages created by metal fencing. One cage has 20 children inside. Scattered about are bottles of water, bags of chips and large foil sheets intended to serve as blankets. One teenager told an advocate who visited that she was helping care for a younger child she didn't know because the child's aunt was somewhere else in the facility. She said she had to show others in her cell how to change the girl's nappy. I mean, words cannot begin to express what you feel when you hear something like that. So I thought I would find out what the British government thought about that. And I will now read that to you. I asked Boris Johnson's team what he thought. And the answer that I got was, uh, there is a cross-government line on this. US immigration policy is a matter for the US government. Wow. 
Wow. Yeah. Now, I mean, on a personal and a sort of human level, my reaction is every bit uh, that you would expect it to be. There is no need to articulate it because I think you could tell what I probably think. I mean, it is not that government is not filled with human beings. We should say that very clearly. And this will, you know, the the people on the other side of the fence from us will be feeling the things that we're feeling about this story, just as just as we are. And we'll try to weigh up all sorts of things about how to respond. And now that is the conclusion that they have come to. I've been rattling around this with MPs today, and one of them, quite a prominent one, was saying... We've just got to say this is wrong. This is wrong. It is like seeing a toddler face down on a beach. It is like that. We have to we have to push aside the complexities, the nuances of the special relationship, the awkwardnesses of this, because we as a country just have to say this is this is wrong. But that isn't what the government is doing. Because there is a trade-off, as ever. There is a neurosis about the special relationship at the moment. And it is playing into a greater identity crisis, both in terms of how the US and the UK work together, uh, but also the UK's place in the world, and also feeds into the way, I think, to be blunt, both Theresa May and Boris Johnson interact with other leaders, particularly those in the US. But all of that makes you come back to the fact that as of... Now, this is, to be fair, this is recorded, you know, shortly before lunchtime on a Tuesday, and I'm damn sure government lines are going to change and evolve, possibly even by the time you're listening to this podcast. But that is the default setting at this hour. And it doesn't exactly make you feel good about yourself. Rachel, the really, really depressing thing about this is instead of coming out and saying what people in Britain would expect their government to say, they'd come up with this sort of pathetic holding line just because they think if they keep their head down, don't say anything, they won't get an angry tweet from the White House. You know, and that's their paranoia about all this. It's absolute moral cowardice and it's appalling. And it shows it's partly to do with, as Sam says, the this kind of obsession about the special relationship with the United States. You know, remember Theresa May holding Donald Trump's hand? That was such an iconic image, wasn't it? But you have to have some moral probity in your foreign policy. Otherwise, what's the point of it? There's an anxiety at the moment, particularly because of Brexit. You know, they're desperate to get a trade deal with Donald Trump. Absolutely no sign he's going to give one whatsoever. So it's even more intense than normal, this neurosis that Sam refers to. But if the vicar's daughter can't stand up against children being locked up in cages and crying for their parents, then what? where is her moral compass? Paul, what do you make of this? I mean, uh, I suspect that we, we all basically agree in the uh, in the room on on this. But what have, what have you made of this story? I, I mean, I think we do all uh, agree about how awful it is. I mean, I suppose the government thinks, as it often does with um, foreign policy, uh, you can make announcements, you can say what you think, but is it going to do any good at all, other than to make you feel better? And I, I presume that the discussion within government is. As Sam was saying, as people, we feel this is appalling. If we say anything, we suspect it will make no difference whatsoever. And there is a downside to us of saying it. The upside, of course, is it might actually make the British people feel a bit better about themselves and, uh, and about their government. And as, as Rachel was saying, if you're going to have, you know, anything that approaches a moral foreign policy, then sometimes you have to make that trade-off. Sam, you and I both know that people who work in Number 10 and other parts of government listen to this podcast, so hopefully one of them is listening and can find some moral backbone and do something about this. Because I, mean, I hadn't heard that line until you read it out. It was absolutely pathetic. 
I hope it's evolved even by the by even by this afternoon. So, so Paul raises a really good point. What what's going to change Donald Trump's mind is sure as anything not going to be Theresa May, and I don't think that they even want to shine a spotlight on that. I suspect it might be the Christian right in the US putting pressure. Parents basically parents who are influential in Trump circles so, so, exactly <laughs> saying uh, saying saying that this isn't good enough but I, l- l- let's take a step back uh, and look at a slightly wider sweep of US UK relations because I was extremely struck by the UK response to the trade war so you will remember that a few weeks back Donald Trump pressed ahead with those uh, trade tariffs on certain goods in order to protect certain US goods it won't work, but let's see. And this is a move that is deliberately designed to hurt a whole series of America's closest allies, including Canada, including the whole of the European Union, including Germany. And what happened then, on the day that that happened, was that Justin Trudeau came out and delivered a blistering speech, a set of remarks about Donald Trump. Angela Merkel came out and delivered a blistering set of remarks about uh, Donald Trump. And Theresa May wasn't available that day. And then was available the next day, but was decidedly more equivocal about it and didn't look like she wanted to have a full-on fight. She actually left the day one response to Liam Fox, who was actually more punchy, and he's the great Atlanticist in government, was actually more punchy than than I thought that she was the the following day. And I think everybody looking at the UK-US relationship is asking themselves the question, which one of two tactics will work? Is it better and more successful with Donald Trump to punch him in the nose or is it better and more successful with him to do everything that he wants and then hope he's nice to you back? And Theresa May seems to be going down path B, but I'm not entirely sure what she's getting for it and I'm not sure that the British public can entirely see what she's getting for it. I I think it's worse than that. A minister uh, I spoke to said, like all these things, she ends up trying to do the sort of Goldilocks approach, not too hot, not too cold. So she cozies up to him to start with, feels that that didn't go terribly well, so then tries to go the other way and get sort of a bit cross with him and, you know, there's been complaints from the White House about the sort of school mistressy tone that he doesn't really like. So she, she ends up with none of the benefits of cozying up to him, but also none of the domestic upside of having been seen to stand up to him. Like you were saying, Paul, you might not do anything if you complain about what's happening now, but at least you might get the British public to think, well, you're, you know, you've got some, some moral fibre. The voters do care about this stuff. Remember that moment in Love, actually, where the Prime Minister stood up to the US President. It was a sort of... You, people Hugh loved Grant, it, didn't yeah, they, yeah. Hugh Grant? And I, I think there's and a really... But there's a really interesting question about the moral compromises that the Brexiteers are willing to make for the sake of creating this global Britain. So if we're walking away from the EU as our economic partners... Who, who are our allies? Who are, where are we going to make all the money? Is it going to be Saudi Arabia? Is it going to be Turkey? Is it going to be a protectionist US? And actually, are they going to have to do some deals with some quite dodgy people in order to make up the shortfall that we're losing from the single market? I think there's an even, even bigger question than that on the table right now, to be honest. And I would go as far genuinely as to say it's an existential one that is coming onto the agenda for next month, and that is on the future of NATO. We have a resurgent Russia. They're at bay a little bit during the World Cup, but they are roaring back as a global security power, endlessly challenging the frontiers of Europe and testing European nations from Sweden to Britain in the ways that we see with uh, both in the air and militarily and with the Scripple affair and all of that. 
And the cornerstone of the West's defence since the Second World War has been the NATO alliance. And Donald Trump is not terribly keen on it. And so the great big diplomatic prize at the moment is not letting him completely unravel NATO, thereby issuing potentially an open invitation to Russia to, you know, test and do what it wants. And if um, given the refusal of both America and Italy to sign up to a communique being tough on Russia uh, at the last G7 summit, uh, the reluctance of America to continue paying, the agonising debate across European capitals about how much its military contribution is to be towards NATO, there is every chance that that thing that makes us safe might not be there in 18 months. And so maybe that's conditioning the way that the British government is deciding to respond to this tragedy at this hour, because there are literally existential things in, on the table now. Well, after that, I th- I'm not sure we've we've made much progress. We don't know where the money is. We don't know where the Tories stand on drugs. And we don't know if anyone in the government has got the guts to tell Donald Trump when he's doing things which are wrong. But um, my thanks to my guests. Before we go, if football is your thing, Sam mentioned the World Cup, uh, we, you can subscribe to the Game Daily podcast in The Times, which is out every night on match days during the World Cup. And while you're there, make sure you subscribe to the Red Box uh, as well, wherever you get your podcasts from. Sign up to my free morning email at thetimes.co.uk forward slash Red Box. But my thanks to Sam Coates, Rachel Sylvester, Paul Johnson, and for me, Matt Chorley, it's goodbye. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program.